everybody, and welcome to Life TK, the podcast where we talk to women writers, editors, and journalists in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, and beyond about the jobs they did when they were in their 20s. My name's Amanda Woidis, and I'm your host. Faithful listeners, I'm just going to jump into it. I was really lucky to talk to Lee Stein, who is the author of three books. She has a work of fiction called The Fallback Plan, which is about a recent grad who moves back home with her parents while she figures out what to do with her life next which is very Life TK. Lee also has a book of poetry, Dispatch from the Future, and a remarkable memoir titled Land of Enchantment. Land of Enchantment is about the time Lee spent in New Mexico writing The Fallback Plan and an abusive relationship she was in during that period of her life. You might also recognize Lee's name because she's co-founder of the amazing nonprofit Out of the Binders, which has helped thousands of women and gender non-conforming writers and editors and journalists make connections, find publishers for their work, network, etc. The name seems a little quirky if you don't get the reference. This is all a riff on the Mitt Romney comment about how he had binders full of us back in simpler times. During a 2012 presidential debate, Mitt Romney was asked about workplace inequality, and he said that he had binders full of women that he considered for state posts after he was elected governor. If you're a member of the Binders Facebook group, and if you're not, I recommend you go and join, you know that you can post a question there and members from all over the country will respond with advice. You can ask about where to pitch stories, find an editor who might want to publish your work, get help with your resume. The nonprofit also hosts conferences called BinderCons in New York City and Los Angeles. During her time with the Binders, Lee organized six of these, and they've greatly helped address gender disparity in the industry. For her advocacy work, Lee has been called a leading feminist by the Washington Post and honored as a woman of influence by New York Business Journal. She's left an impression on the writing world that will probably last forever, but let's find out what Lee was up to in her 20s. I have kind of uh, an unconventional uh, educational background, so I'm always kind of stumped when people ask me, where did you go to school? I actually dropped out of high school halfway through my junior year. I was very depressed and anxious and um, hated high school, and I started taking classes at the community college, which I really loved because it it felt more like um, less micromanaged. I didn't have to go every day. I had always just been a kid who stayed home from school as much as she could. I loved being at home and just like reading the books I wanted to read and writing letters. I had like 50 pen pals all over the world. So I've always kind of been like an introverted writer type. So when I was 19, I moved to New York City to go to acting school. And when I arrived there, they were like, "Um, we don't have your high school diploma. And I was like, well, that's because I don't have one. And they were like, well, you can't come to our college without a high school diploma. And I was like, well, you didn't tell me. And I had just been like doing everything myself, you know, like I didn't really have helicopter parents or parents telling me to apply to this school or that school. So I made a deal with my acting school that I would study for and take the GED while I went to classes. So that's what I did. So I have a GED from the state of New York. I So I went to acting school for a year and I was involved in the live journal online community. I had a a live journal, which was kind of like a blog. Right. I remember live journal. Yes. 
if yeah. you remember Live Journal, like anyone, you bring it up, and they're like, "Oh, Live oh, Journal!" Yeah. Like it just brings like waves of nostalgia. So I was in acting school, but really, I was like also going home at night and just posting stories and poems on my Live Journal. And I had my first short story published that year, and it seemed to me like, "Oh, maybe this is the thing I should be doing," um, because I really am so introverted. Like the whole, you know, going to acting school every day showed me what it would be like to actually be around actors and actresses every day. And yeah. I was like, oh, no, I want to just be home. Um, so my so that, so that was the year I really decided to be a writer. And then it was the question of, like, well, how am I really going to be a writer? Um, so I spent the next few years just working in restaurants. I was a coat check girl, um, which is really good money in New York City yeah. to work. Um, I just worked on weekends. I just worked, like, two nights a week, and I would bring home, like, 250 or $300 a night. And then the rest of the week, oh. I would just, like, write my stories and poems. So that was, like, a good gig. I was – and then I moved around a lot. So I moved from New York City back to Chicago. I worked as a hostess in restaurants in Chicago. Then I met this guy when I was 22 at an audition. Um, and that's the subject of my memoir. We ended up moving to Albuquerque, where I was also a waitress and wrote my first novel there. While I was with him, so it was a, an abusive, toxic relationship that I mm-hmm. couldn't quit. It was really, like – I was addicted to this guy, even though he was bad for me. He was also like the most exciting person I'd ever been with. I felt like I couldn't quit him. And a friend of mine, Julia, had an internship at The New Yorker for Francoise Mouly, who's the cover editor. And she emailed me and she was like, um, Francoise needs a new assistant. I think you should apply. And I had just broken, tried to break up with this guy. I was living back at home with my parents for like the fourth time as an adult. And I was like, I'm so depressed. I can't move to New York right now. Like, I can't do it. And she's like, okay, okay, I get it. Just just send your resume. <laughs> I was like, okay, okay, I'll send my resume. So I did. At this point, again, like, I had a GED and no college. I, I didn't have a college degree. But Francoise is like this, I mean, she's just like an amazing woman. And um, she doesn't have a college degree either she's like she moved to New York City like when she was like 19 or 20 hardly knew any English and just built this art career and met Art Spiegelman and they had this romance and um, you know he taught her English by reading comics to her like she's she's just an iconoclast so we were kind of like a perfect match so I sent my resume she talked to me on the phone for an hour and she's like will you come to New York so I can meet you so I flew to New York I think my parents must have bought my ticket because I didn't have any money I was broke and I flew to New York and the interview was just like her talking to me for two hours. Like she, like I had brought all these materials with me. Like what could she ask me about? Like I brought my writing and I brought little like zines and chapbooks I had made. And I brought like anything that I had to show. But she just talked to me for two hours. And then she was like, can you stuff some envelopes? And I was like, yeah. So, <laughs> so I just started that day. So I was her assistant. She she also has a small publishing company called Tune Books, which are comic book easy readers. So that's where I started working for her. And then because her assistant at the New Yorker was like leaving but still looking for full-time work. So I was kind of poised to take over that role at the moment it became available. And so that's what I did. And I worked at the New Yorker, which I was thinking about before we talked. I'm like, wow, that's still – that's the only like – full-time nine-to-five office job I've ever had in my life was one year when I worked at the New Yorker. Um, but like what a great job to have had like if you have to work in any sort of office <laughs> and for any like 
publication, you picked like the best one. Yeah. And it was super exciting because it was 2008. So it was the Obama election campaign. I was one of the first people that saw the infamous Obama fist bump cover. Oh my gosh. And I didn't get it. Like she, so I worked (laughs) downstairs in her office. Like she had like one floor was like this comic book office that was just like floor to ceiling art books and comic books and this like guillotine paper cutter from like 1972. It was just like so old school. And then their apartment was on the fourth floor. And I remember she like, I was in her apartment and she showed me the image on her laptop and I, and I just said like, wow, but I didn't get it. I didn't get it. But I was always just like so intimidated and always just saying, wow, that's amazing when I didn't understand something. I felt like, you know, like this imposter syndrome where like, I'm like, oh yeah. How did I get this job? I don't know, but like I'm going to just fake it until I get it, you know, until I understand what's going on. That's just been my strategy in life. Lee just talked about faking it until you make it. But when she brought up this cover, I was really racking my brain, too embarrassed to ask her to refresh my memory. So, lesson learned. The cover she is referring to is illustrated by Barry Blitt, and it depicted President Obama in the Oval Office dressed in some headgear that looks like a turban, and wearing a robe. And there's a portrait of Osama bin Laden in the same headgear over the fireplace, which is burning an American flag. Yikes. This is about three years before bin Laden was killed, by the way, in 2008. The president is fist-bumping the first lady, who has an afro and is dressed in fatigues with a machine gun strapped to her back. The Times reported that someone asked President Obama about the cover, and his response was, I have no response to that. Woof. Okay, back to Lee. Oh, my gosh. And it was, like, traumatic. I mean, when it came (laughs) out, and I think she writes about this, and I worked, I helped her with her book, Blown Covers, which is, like, a great um, kind of coffee table book about the history of New Yorker covers, and it has a lot of rejects. It's really interesting. I think there was, like, um, I think there's supposed to be, like, a swastika in the image, too. Like, it's a signal that it was so over the top that this is, like, the diluted uh, portrait of, you know, people who were against Obama, what they thought of him, that he was a yeah. Muslim terrorist and, you know, a Nazi, all this stuff. But I think I think the story goes, like, David Remnick cut, like, said, no, the swastika's over the top, we have to cut that. And Francoise thinks that's why people didn't get the image. It wasn't over the top enough. It was too close to realism. But the backlash to that was, like, unbelievable. Like, she broke out in hives and... um oh she, I think, had to go get dental work done because she was grinding her teeth in her sleep. It was like, it was so traumatic, but it was also like, I mean, like a thrilling place to work because every week, like something else would happen. Like we would be like, like Sarah Palin would say something so ignorant and we'd be like, oh my God, we need a Sarah Palin cover. Um, The other funny thing is that like, you know, Francoise, she's like the cover, like she gets to do what she wants. Yeah. I mean, people at the New Yorker in general get to do what they want, like, because it's just, it's such an institution. Like, I don't think it's as beholden to advertisers and to revenue as um, some of the other properties are for Condé Nast, because it's like the New Yorker. So Francoise is like, you know, I need a new assistant and it's going to be Lee. Like I've already chosen her, but I still had to go through HR. And I remember just, just being like, and where did you go to school? And I was like, uh, I actually don't have a college degree. And what I wish I would have said at the time was like, and neither does Francoise, but like I didn't have the balls to say that. I imagine that working in that office, if you have even like 
the tiniest tinge of imposter syndrome is a pretty intimidating place. To yeah, be. I worked. We were. Um, it was in Times Square at that time. Yeah, now downtown. But um, yeah, it's it's kind of weird. Like on one hand, like being around Francoise, like I just admired her so much, and I thought she was such a genius. Like that's when I had imposter syndrome because yeah. I was like oh, I don't know what that references or like, I don't know what that means. But she's actually like a great, like she never shamed me for not knowing something. And eventually I got comfortable with saying like, I don't know who that is. Or like, oh, I didn't know that it was pronounced that way. Or, you know, like that kind of yeah. thing. Um, yeah. She loves teaching and she loves learning. And so, but on this, at the other, the other side of the coin, like, I don't know if I realized how cool it was that I worked at the New Yorker. And like now when I'm looking back, I'm like, Oh my God. Like I should yeah. have held on to that job longer. I don't think I appreciated it as much. It was, uh, it was a weird, it was a weird time. It was very exciting, but if it, something exciting wasn't going on, it was very boring and I didn't have a lot of responsibility and okay. I really need to like be working and have work. Like I, I can't, I can't handle being bored <laughs> like, yeah. beyond. So I don't think I really appreciated what I had at the time. And it was a very, people there are very, when I worked there, it was like very quiet. Like you, mm-hmm. the hallways were very quiet. Nobody really talked to each other. Like I would try to make lunch dates with people and they wouldn't. And I would be like, am I so awkward? Like nobody even wants to have lunch with me. It was just a little, it just felt a little awkward. And I didn't appreciate the bigger picture of the fact that I had a job at the New Yorker and maybe I could parlay that into something later. What you were kind of saying about this job just sort of opening up, I think it, when I started this project, I was like, oh, I'm going to find out like how successful people become successful. And then it kind of quickly became clear that it doesn't matter, like you can be the hardest worker or like the smartest or like the best at the job, but it doesn't really matter unless like the right opportunity is open. Yeah. And well, that's encouraging for a lot of people, but it's also kind of, disheartening. You probably remember like growing up and people telling you like, oh, you can do whatever you want to do, meaning like you can do anything a boy can do. Like that was kind of the (laughs) subtext. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But now I feel like that's the hardest part of your 20s is slowly realizing like, oh, that's not actually the case. Like, do you remember kind of feeling that way too? I think the story of my life so far is that I'm just rebellious. And so Anything that I was told I had to do, I didn't want to do it. If you say I have to go to school every day, I'm not going to do it. Like if you say I have to have a college degree, I'm not going to do it. So eventually I did get my, I did get my bachelor's at Brooklyn College when I was 28. But I just, there's just something inside me that says like, I don't want to be conventional. And, and part of me is like, that is so immature. Like am I ever going to grow out of this? But, um, I joke that like my, my boyfriend, Brian, who I've been with for six years, like I joke that our relationship is like me telling him that I have this big idea and then him saying, I don't know, that's going to be a lot of work. And like, that's the resistance I need to do it. Like I need someone to tell me, I don't know, because I can rebel against that, which is what happened with BinderCon. I was like, I'm going to have a conference. And he was like, that's a lot of work. And I was like, I know, but of course I didn't know but I did it anyway. So I think what you say is true about the opportunity has to be there, but I also have noticed this pattern of, and I see this in myself and I see this in other people, it's like the willingness to do this thing that's risky or uncomfortable because I've noticed um, like doing my conferences and meeting so many women writers, I mean, I probably met thousands of people. Like, Like one example I give is like, 
there was this woman who I was pretty close to. She she came to the first conference and she really wanted to pitch this screenplay she'd been working on for years, but all the meetings with the people she could have pitched it to were full. There were no spots available for her. But I was a friend of hers and I really wanted to help her. And so when somebody canceled their spot, I immediately got it for her and I told her. And she said, oh, you know, thanks so much, but, you know, it's my son's birthday, so I think I'm I'm not going to come. And I just felt, like, so disheartened because I felt like, oh, you're so close. Like, all you have to yeah. do is, like, come in for 10 minutes and then go to the birthday. But it's, right. like, this hesitation. That's the thing that drives me crazy because I, I wish women would feel more comfortable being uncomfortable. I think that we're more risk-averse. And we need to know, we need to feel like, the other example is like a friend of mine in LA, a friend of mine moved to LA to become a TV writer. She's been taking all these classes and she's like, all the, she's like, they aren't classes for women, but all the people in the classes are women because a guy has an idea and he's like, I can write a screenplay. How hard could it be? And oh yeah, they is, don't think they need to go. Right. Right. And women yeah. were like, well, I better learn every single thing before I even try to write a screenplay. Yeah. Do you think that's sort of, maybe like the biggest challenge that women and especially young women face in the workplace today is like giving ourselves permission to just not have to like ask anyone else permission yeah. to do things, just like jumping into it. Yeah. I, and it's like this willingness to experiment because it's the risk is that you might fail, right? You could try writing a book and it, it might not get published or you can try switching careers and you might find that it's terrible, a terrible idea. I don't know. I lean on the side of risking. On the same, you know, on the other side, my financial situation is not great. Like I've been scraping by and freelancing for like years and doing what I love and taking risks and, you know, practicing what I preach, but I don't have retirement savings. You know, like when I read articles about like how much millennials should be saving and how like none of us are going to have any money to retire, I'm like, oh, guilty as charged. Oh, we're all in the same boat. Yeah. Um, what was the either like biggest lesson you learned when you were in your 20s or like the biggest challenge you face? Um, one thing I thought of is I think you would like the podcast, The Broad Experience. Have you ever listened to that? No. Who hosts that? Her name's Ashley Milne Tite. She's British. Um, but they talk a lot about this kind of, there was an episode that I loved about how hard it is for women to delegate. Oh my gosh, yeah. Which is definitely something that I have learned through my work at BinderCon. I, it's just impossible because I'm also like, it's like, I also think there's this idea that like the things I'm complimented for are like, Lee, you work so hard. Or people will say, the indefatigable Lee Stein. And I'm like, but you guys, I am tired. <laughs> like, I don't know if I want to wear the trophy of she worked harder than everybody else anymore. I think that mm -hmm. is the, the mantle that I've worn for much of my life, that I'm always the one who says, oh, you need someone to do that? You need someone to stay late? Oh, you need someone to do this? Oh, yeah, I can pick up the copies. I can do this. I can do this because I want to be seen as the hardest worker. There but was actually a study that came out not too long ago that basically said, like, it doesn't really pay off to be the hardest worker because your supervisor will just keep giving you more yeah. and more. And then when you finally get burned out, they're like, oh, well, we thought you could handle this. Uh, whoops, I sort of misspoke here. I went back and looked up that study and correction time, it's not that recent. It's from 2015. But the article I read is titled, Being a Go-Getter is No Fun by Bori Lamb, and it's in The Atlantic. 
A team of researchers looked at how extremely competent people are treated by their coworkers and found that people not only assigned more tasks to go-getters, but also underestimated how much work it would take to get the job done. Researchers surveyed overachievers, and it turns out they correctly assumed that their managers and coworkers didn't understand how much extra effort it takes to be a top performer. Interestingly, the study didn't look at gender as a factor. I think it would be fascinating to look at the gender not only of overachievers, but also their managers. Yeah, I've been reading a lot about burnout because I'm actually leaving out of the binders the organization I co-founded. This is my last week because I did, I, I got burnt out. I tried, I kept trying to find ways to make this work sustainable so that I could really do it as a job. But for the past two years, 2016 and 2015, I made $12,000 a year doing it. So I had a bunch of other freelance gigs, obviously, because I can't live on that. And I just couldn't figure out a way to make it a sustainable thing. And that's, you know, a long story with a lot of different pieces. But I do think I did learn a lot of leadership skills through this experience, and I did learn to delegate. But of course, it was me and a bunch of other volunteers. So when I'm delegating things to volunteers, you know, it's not like I can be like, I'm paying you to do this. Right. Whenever, you know, when their kids were asleep or their kids are at school, they could send emails for me or something like that. So that's another challenge. And this is more related, I think, like to feminist activism. The work needs to be done and who can afford to do the work. But one lesson I can say that I'm learning, I can say from like a freelance perspective, I don't think I've realized except in the last few years that I am a full-time freelancer. I I hadn't really used that term, you know, because I'd always done a bunch of different gigs since I left The New Yorker. I taught kids. I taught writing to adults. I still do. I have a proofreading gig. I do a bunch of stuff. And I think in my 20s, I thought of my life in like three to six month chunks oh, this summer I'll do that, or like next fall I'll do this. Um, And I think that's, even though I have a non-traditional education background, it's almost like thinking of continuing to think of your life, like in terms of school year. I was also a babysitter, so like my babysitting work like aligned with the school year. And only recently have I started to think like, okay, like how much money am I going to make? Do I want to make this year? How how does that break down by quarter? What am I doing in each quarter? So like I'm starting to do more long-term thinking than I've ever done before. Also in my 20s, like it's like, you know, with each book that I wrote, you know, there's the fantasy life of like, well, this is the book that's going to make me Cheryl Strait or something. And then my life is going to be completely different because I'm going to be in my mansion. So now that I'm older and I have three books under my belt, I'm like, okay, my book comes out and I'm still the same person and I still need to make money. And I, so I think that's been my big mindset from my 20s to my 30s, the shift to thinking more long-term And it's essential for like your financial stability and also your mental health. What was either like the best or the worst piece of advice someone gave you when you were in your 20s? And do you have any career advice for women who are in their 20s right now? Oh, man. Right (laughs) before I started working at The New Yorker, I was at dinner with my parents and my dad's college friend and his wife. They knew I was going to get this job. And she said, I just want to give you one piece of advice. And I said, okay. And she said, your generation loves to email, but there's a benefit to picking up the phone sometimes. And that was such good advice because it's so true. My instinct is to just like conduct my entire life via email. (laughs) And I think that also is because I'm a writer. Like I just, I'm like, I can control the message. You know, I can get it right down exactly how I want it. But talking on the phone, and I find like even recently I've been talking on the phone to friends more often than I more than I have since I was like 13 years old. 
but there is something there is something nice to that and it is i think a generational thing where maybe a millennial instinct is to just send the seventh email but uh it yeah. might be better to call that 48 year old person on the phone <laughs> i saw that you were teaching a writing class at catapult is there like one piece of advice that you would have for new writers like anything you wish you would have known when you started out to write that first book I mean, a lot of the advice I give them is, like, advice I should give myself. <laughs> I think my students like hearing that, like, we're all in the same boat together. Like, there's no yeah. magic. But things like, and this is from Danny Shapiro, people, including myself, we imagine that the words that we're writing down on the page are going to appear at the Barnes & Noble tomorrow. <laughs> um, so that idea of, like, imagining that this is going to be published before you've even kind of played around with it. And so... I'm often, like, especially when I have really ambitious, like, overachiever students in which I see myself in them, you know? Yeah. And they really just want the answer, and they just want to do it right, and they just want my stamp of approval. Did I do it right? Did I do what you said? And I have to just say, you know, you got to, like, play in the sandbox a little longer, which can be frustrating, I think, for, like, a type A. You're like, I don't want to play in the sandbox. Like, I just want to build my castle, you know? I just want to step yeah. to that step. But with writing, so much of it is, like, I told a student I'm teaching at the 92nd Street Y, and I one of my students is like trying to write his book in present tense, but I think I, I don't know if he can sustain that for the whole book. And I told him, you know, I wrote my whole memoir in past tense, then I wrote it in present tense with past tense flashbacks, then I rewrote it in past tense, oh <laughs> and like God. that was just part of the process, you know. Even though yeah. at the time I was like, oh my God, I have to rewrite it. I I wouldn't have known that that was the right answer if I hadn't experimented. Going back to sort of how you launched Out of the Binders and BinderCon, you said that you were sort of an introvert. How did you just kind of, I remember reading in your book that you were like, you know what, there's a need for this. I want to do it. I'm the person to go ahead and lead it. Like, how did you get there? Was it just like you wanted to feel a little uncomfortable, just went for it? Like, how can people sort of get over that hump and just like go for things? So people... A lot of people like who don't know me very well are surprised that I'm an introvert because I'm like good at performing extroversion. <laughs> and I think there's this book by Keith Johnstone, who's like the founder of British Improv. So I did like a bunch of improv when I was younger. And um, he wrote something that really has stuck with me, which is that if you, it, he uses an example of someone taking tennis lessons. And, and if you tell the person taking tennis lessons hit the ball like you're a professional tennis player, like pretend you're Serena Williams or something. And people actually perform better when they're pretending that they're good at something that they're just learning. So I've kind of taken that to be like, well, you know, I really like just being at home with my cat, but if I'm in front of a crowd of people, if I just pretend like I'm comfortable in front of a crowd of people, it does make me feel more comfortable. So it's kind of just playing the role that you need to play in that moment. And the other thing that I learned from improv that's helped me pretend to be an extrovert is like an improv, you're not trying to make yourself look good. You're trying to make your scene partner look good. When you're in a conversation with someone at a party or whatever, it's like you ask about them. You want them to feel good more than you want to feel good yourself. And if you make other people feel good, they'll have good feelings about you. We just had our L.A. conference April 1st and 2nd. And these two women did a workshop on finding a, like an accountability buddy, like finding your writing buddy. And yeah. they had met online and they met for the first time at the conference in person. Oh, wow. Which was so cute. Yeah, that's awesome. 
I feel like that's really a hard thing to do in your 20s, too, is finding someone who is equally motivated. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe in my 30s, it'll all come together. (laughs) No, it's hard. And like my little sister, so I'm like an old millennial. My little sister is 24, so she's like a young millennial. And um, she just graduated from school, but like she had these two close friends in school and they drift apart for various reasons. And she's just so, like, lonely. And I keep thinking, like, who do I know in Chicago that I can set her up on a friend date with? But, like, yeah. she really needs, like, an intellectual – she wants to, like, talk about ideas and books with someone, you know. She she wants that kind yeah. of stimulating conversation. And she has some friends, but she needs that kind of deep, you know, bond. And for me, yeah. I've always found those people on the Internet <laughs> for whatever <laughs> reason. Um, that's where I found my, my people. I mean, the flip side is, like – People will reach out to you when they need something, but then you'll do it back and like it's radio silence. I don't know if it gets easier as people get older and maybe figure out like, oh, we shouldn't be treating each other like this. But yeah, that's a real struggle. Well, now you make me think there's this whole other conversation about, I don't know if this is a millennial thing, but like I'm noticing there's like a weird lack of boundaries with people asking for things. And people assuming some kind of intimacy or friendship with me that isn't there. And so I've tried to get better about drawing my own boundaries and also, like, releasing myself from the idea that I have to respond to every email. I don't know if you read, um, Melissa Phoebos just wrote an essay for Catapult about, like, your role isn't to be the best person at answering email. (laughs) I did. I didn't read it, but I saw that headline. It's really good. And she texted me, and she was like, I wrote this for you. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to Oh, my gosh. Um, I'm obsessed with her. I have since checked this story out, and it's called, Do You Want to Be Known for Your Writing or for Your Swift Email Responses? Again, by Melissa Phoebos on Catapult. It's a numbered list, and spoiler alert, number six is stop trying to get an A-plus on anything but writing your best work. Melissa Phoebos is the author of a memoir called Whip Smart, which is about her experience working as a dominatrix while in school. Sounds incredible, and I'm still on hold for it at my local library. Yeah, but this is part of my, like, oh, Lee Stein is so hardworking, she answers every email, like, uh, yeah. mantle that I'm trying to take off, but, like, I... I heard um, some advice that I heard recently is like, if it's not a hell yes, it's a no. So I try to, when people ask me for things, if like when I got your email, I was like, yes, I love talking about this kind of stuff. Like this is right up my alley. Like this is a hell yes. I want to do this. But some stuff I get and I'm like, "Mm, no, no, I don't have time to this. Like this has nothing to do with me. I can tell they're just emailing everybody. I've gotten all these weird, like... It's just so weird to me, like people sending like weird, like BCC. So, you know, that there's like hundreds of people on this email and they're like asking you for this very specific time intensive favor um, or the personal asks that seem personal, but it's also clear, like they don't know anything about me. But I usually respond to people who are, you know, it's clear. It's like they know who I am. They've, you know, at least Googled me and they, you know, have yeah. something to say. And and that's what I try to do for other people. If I'm going to ask someone for something, you know, I say, you know, congrats on this or how are you doing with that? Like I try to, you know, I think we all just want to be treated like people. But I think the Internet has kind of erased boundaries in a way that and I also think it's it's a combination of like lack of boundaries and also this message to young women or to young people that's like, just ask. You have nothing to lose. Just ask. And I'm on the receiving end of a lot of these asks where I'm like, ooh, but I agree, there is sort of this mentality with 20-somethings that's like, oh, just go for it, whatever, like, 
Yeah, just wacky request. Yeah. You want to ask for the things that you really feel confident about or worth spending time on, but not be so bold that you're just wasting people's time. So maybe just a couple last questions. Who are the women you're reading right now? And are there any additional women I know you talked about, Francois, but um, who helped you sort of get to where you are today that you want to shout out? Sure. I'm reading um, The Idiot by Ellis Bataman. It's a very funny novel. So she wrote this book of essays called The Possessed that's about um, her Russian literature studies. Like, it doesn't sound like it should be a good book. It's hilarious. It's just the woman who, like, I was just talking about this with someone who she, like, took all these Russian literature classes and then went to study abroad. Yes. And the novel is, like, it's a great story. She's like a fabulous speaker and just a nice person and a funny person. I just really enjoy her. But the novel uh, is like her undergraduate freshman year at Harvard. This novel she wrote like 20 years ago, like right after being an, a freshman. And That's she cool. put it in a drawer. And she was she's now a staff writer for The New Yorker. And she was writing like fictionalized version of like a 30-something woman who's a staff writer at something like The New Yorker. <laughs> oh, my and gosh. And it was going nowhere. And she was doing all these flashbacks to undergrad. And then she was like, why don't I just go look at that book that I wrote 20 years ago? And she's like, oh, this isn't so bad. And so this is the book. But it's interesting and relevant to our conversation because it's, so it's in 1995, I think. She has email for the first time. And so she and this other young man are kind of developing this intense relationship only through their emails. They hardly ever acknowledge each other when they're in the same room, but they have this like intense relationship over email. And it's so great to me because I feel like one of the things that I wish there was more of is literature that's about how we live our digital lives, which is really hard to pull off. And so this is, it's just really interesting to me because it's also like, it's so hard to imagine a time when email was new. It has a millennial pink cover. (laughs) I'm not over millennial pink yet. (laughs) Great news. (laughs) Oh, I wanted to give a shout out to somebody. Yeah. Who's my friend Jenny Baird, who, um, so I live in Connecticut. I lived in Brooklyn for years, but my boyfriend got a job here, so we moved to Connecticut. I got an email from this woman, Jenny Baird, who said, can I volunteer for the BinderCon Scholarship Committee? Do you meet in person? I live in Connecticut. And I said, oh, I just moved to Connecticut. And she said, do you want to go on a hike? And I was like, sure. (laughs) So that was how we first met. So she took me for like a long walk near this beautiful beach in Greenwich and, um, We've become really good friends, and she's become a mentor to me. So she's probably in her late 40s, and she had a big career working in media. It's been a really great relationship, and I'm really interested in this idea of, like, intergenerational mentorship. So she's yeah. really been, like, a entrepreneurial business mentor to me, and I've been a writing mentor to her because she wrote a memoir. So I, I read her memoir, and she's, you know, helped me with my marketing and business plan. So I kind of love that stuff, and I don't think it has to be, you know, older generation mentoring younger. I am really interested in, um, you know, what can we all provide each other? What can we trade? Please tattoo on my body. If it's not a hell yes, it's a no. I love that so much. Lee was a great interview. I want to say thank you to her for volunteering her time and for giving us so many gems. I definitely think a huge takeaway from life in her 20s that we can all use and learn from is don't be afraid to be uncomfortable. 
I am so uncomfortable right now and I'm doing it and mostly getting through it. To find more out about Lee, you can go to her website, leestein.com, or follow her on Twitter. Her handle is at rhymeswithb. Read her books, especially Land of Enchantment, you all. It's so good. Now here's an ask that I hope will be a hell yes. Please go to lifetk.com to sign up for my newsletter, which I'm going to be using as a roundup of news articles about women in the workplace and writing that you should be reading, sort of like I did with that study about overachievers and Melissa Phoebos' writing. All right, time to close it down. Here's one last snippet from Lee. See you later. People didn't really give me bad advice. They just, I just remember like my, spending my whole 20s, like having people kind of like smile with pity at me because I wanted to be a writer. Like nobody believed me, but I proved them. Mm-hmm.